I want to introduce you to two people. This is Mr. and Mrs. Pitcher, okay? And Mr. and Mrs. Pitcher uh, met each other a while back. They were mutually introduced to each other, and um, they quickly saw each other, and he said, man, she's fine. And, he, and she, said, she looked at him and said, man, he's good looking. And sparks flew, and they began a relationship, and they began a date, and, and they were engaged, and one thing led to the next, and they're married. And their marriage started off so very well. I mean, they were as close as they could be, and they, everything could not have been better. And then somewhere along the line, there was a little bump along the way, but it was no big deal. Just a small little bump. It was all going to be okay. And then a little bit later on, there was a, oh, a little another bump, but a couple little things came out at the time, but not a big deal. Well, a little bit longer down the road, there was a big misunderstanding and there was a big bump. And when the big bump happened, they started freaking out a little bit. She's like, well, I didn't know he had a temper like that. And he's like, I didn't know she was so crazy. You know, so she goes to her sister's house. You know how that is. And then he, and he goes, well, I don't know. Where do guys go? I don't know. They, he went to the woods or the golf course. He went somewhere. Do we really go anywhere? I don't know. But he goes somewhere and they're split up. Now, here's the deal. They think the issue is conflict. But the issue is not conflict. The real thing is what ha they had on the inside. Because what was on the inside came out during the bump. See, what came out was on the inside. This is really deep, okay, this morning. You're learning a lot right now. See, Mr. and Mrs. Pitcher thought, well, it was the conflict. It was the bump. And every, every time they would bump, things would come out of them. But what they failed to recognize, and this is, don't miss this, what they failed to recognize is that it's not about the conflict, because you're always going to have conflict. It was about what was on the inside, and whatever was on the inside came out, and what came out was their character. Their character. When you're squeezed, when you're bumped, when your life drops below sea level, when you experience difficulty, what comes out? Whatever comes out is your character. And what we're going to learn today is just that. You know, before there was Romeo and Juliet, before there was uh, Mr. Darcy and Miss Elizabeth from Pride and Prejudice. Yes, I've seen the movie because my wife, that's my wife's favorite movie. So I have seen it. Okay. There was Ruth and there was Boaz and they lived around 1000 B.C., and in 1000 BC, we have a true account of a, of a woman named Ruth and a man named Boaz, two single people. How many single people do we have here today? Show of hands real quick. Okay, did you know that in our country today, there are more single people than there are married people? In the history of our, first time in the history of our country, we have more single than we do married. And we have two single people and what comes out of them when they are bumped in life is their character. And we're going to learn from their journey this morning. If you're single, you're going to want to take note because you're going to learn from two single people. If you're married, you get the opportunity to be challenged by two incredible single people. So let's turn to Ruth and let's look at it together. Ruth chapter two, verse one. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. 
Now, I just want to stop right there for a second. The word standing in the original language has to do with a war hero, has to do with somebody who was wealthy, and more importantly, someone who had deep character. So we get a window, a glimpse of what and who Boaz is. And then in verse 2, And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. Now, two quick, real quick things. First of all, what Ruth is talking about here is that these harvesters, these workers would go out into the fields. They would hold the grain in their left hand and with the sickle, they would cut down the grain. And they'd be very careful not to drop any. They'd drop just a few small little bit. And the pickers, Ruth, would go along and try to pick up what was dropped. Now, this is the equivalent of trying to make a living collecting cans today. So it was very, very difficult. But what you also get a glimpse of here is that who Ruth was introduced as. Ruth the Moabite. There's a little hint of racism. There's a little hint of prejudice. Now, I have a good friend, and he's not the same ethnicity that I am. And let me tell you, he, he came to me, and he started attending Graceland, and he said, I'm grateful for Graceland because people don't treat me different because I don't look like a lot of them. And I said, I'm so grateful for that, because here's the deal. There is no room for prejudice or racism in the family of God. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's look at uh, verse 3 together. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. He says, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, well, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz arrives. He says hello to all of his workers in the typical way he does. We'll get to that in a little bit. And then he goes, ooh, who's that woman? He goes to the foreman. He says, who is that woman? She's caught my eye. Is she single? Is she married? Is she taken? What's the deal? He said, boss, boss, boss. You don't want anything to do with her. She's, first of all, she's from Moab. Okay, Moab, one of those. And the second of all, she's been waiting all day. It's inferred here. She's been waiting all day to get permission in order to glean. Now, here's a clue for us, a deep window into her character. She's bumped, she's squeezed, and here she is patiently waiting. That's Ruth. Then look with me in verse 8. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother in your homeland and came to live with a with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord and the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. 
May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. So what you have here is Boaz insisting that she stay in his field. And this would have been completely countercultural because typically the, the pickers would go from one field to the next because there wasn't much to pick. But she, he is saying, no, I want you to stay in my field and my field alone. And don't worry. You can work with the women. And the women would take the bundles of grain, they would bind them up, and then they would take the commodity to the local market to sell because this was Boaz's business, at least part of his business, we think. And then on top of it, he says, do not be afraid. You are comp- protected and you are safe here. And here's what I think is important here. That no, typically a, a, a picker would go along and be forced out immediately by the workers or taken advantage of. Ruth is young. Ruth is probably good looking. And because of that, she may have been taken advantage of. But thanks be to God, this isn't the case. And then Boaz, obviously, he is kind of shocked that she's here, but even more importantly, he showers praise upon her because of her character, as you see that again. And Ruth is shocked by the kindness. She bows down to him because she's a Moabite. That was her custom. That was how they showed thanks. And then what Boaz does, he prays for her. He blesses her. And the way he blesses her is that he refers to her faith And he talks about how she put her faith in refuge in God. And he gives this wonderful word picture of a a mother bird and how we can come underneath the wings of God and seek his refuge. Then look at with me in verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it into the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. And as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth, she gets up, she goes back to work and all the rest of the workers and Boaz, they're hanging out. And so Boaz, he has a quick team meeting. He says, okay, here's a couple deal. First of all, you will not lay a hand on that woman. Is that, is that understood? And you can just see all the workers. Yes, sir. And he said, second of all, I want you to conspicuously drop extra product on the ground as you walk along for her to pick up. Now, this would have been a shock. And this also would have been an act of generosity of great proportions. And here's why. Because Boaz was a man who gave to God. He gave his first fruits. He gave 10% of his gross earnings, not the net, but the gross earnings before Uncle Sam took took his share. He gave 10% to God, okay? And he gave 10% to God. And then out of another pocket altogether, he gave resources to this particular single destitute woman. Now, this would have been like... Uh, today, a businesswoman, a Christian businessman or woman who owns a grocery store, who has a single mom, a destitute, bankrupt single mom coming to his or her store, and they say, hey, I want you to go through my store. I want you to pick the groceries you need, and it's all on me. It's all on my dime. 
And the workers and the security guy is not going to bother you. You can walk out. It's my gift to you. Now, that particular business owner has already given the 10% to God. It's already given his share to the Lord. And then out of a different pocket, an act of generosity has been, has been given to that single mom. Now, here's what I love. And one author says it best. He says that Boaz uses money and loves people. And so often the case, we get it backwards, that we love money and we use people. Let me say that again. So often the case is that we often will use people and love money. And Boaz here, what is he doing? He's using money to love people. So important. All right, let's continue to read here as we continue. Verse 17, so Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. Now, let's stop there for a sec. She gathered a lot. She did really good. And an ephah weighed about 29 pounds. She had harvested 29 pounds. To put that into perspective, this was one half to a whole month's wage. She had a really good day in one day. What a great sales day. One day, almost a month's salary. Incredible. And the author wants us to take note of that, doesn't he? Verse 18, she carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. The Lord bless you, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. The man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. Another translation would say he is our kinsman redeemer. Then verse 21, then Ruth the Moabite said, he said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the woman who work for him because in some, someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. So you can just sense here, you get the idea that Ruth, she comes home, she's riding on cloud nine. And she says, you will not guess what happened. You will not guess what it took place. Look at all of the product that I have. Look at the, the one month's wage that I took home. And she's building the story. And she finally, and oh, by the way, the guy that did this is Boaz. And yes, we're related to him. And Naomi says, yes, he's our kinsman redeemer. In their culture, they would have said he's our goel. And that is the opportunity a goel had to either redeem, like let's say a bankrupt piece of property that a family member had um, been brought upon them and he could redeem the piece of property or the last name and bring it back to uh, good standing. Or if a woman had lost a husband, he could marry her if she was so willing to do. And we see the kinsman redeemer at work. But what I love here is what a great imagery of what God does is how he redeems sinners like me and like you. And he demonstrates the fact that we in our bankruptness because of our sin is able to take our account to the black and redeem our lives through the blood of Jesus Christ. Amazing. 
Now, as we go along, Naomi would say, okay, remember, I want you to harvest with uh, Boaz until the harvest is over. This is a good opportunity. And she does so. And she finishes out with Boaz. And you can imagine there were some long walks along for the ride. There was probably some slow lunches. There was probably definitely some dating and some flirting that took place. And we're going to get to chapter three, the rest of the story and the relationship and the midnight proposal and all the things that took place. But before we do, I want to stop here and I want to make some observations. And what I want to do is I want to make some observations about when when Ruth is squeezed, when Ruth is against the wall, what comes out? Because what comes out is her character. So if you have your listening guide, I'd love for you to get it out and I'd love for you to take a couple of notes with me. What came out of Ruth when she was squeezed? And the first thing we learn, and really the main overall emphasis that we learn from Ruth is that she was full of goodness and honesty. That Ruth was full of goodness and honesty. And we see this over and over again in her story. First thing we see is the fact that she is humble. Look at it with me in verse 10. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? She's humble. She's not, she doesn't think of herself in ways that she shouldn't. She's she's over herself. She doesn't think she's a bag of chips and then some. She just realizes she's who she is and she's okay with that. She's probably a person that's fun to be around because people that are humble people typically are people that you can trust and rely upon. Not only that, but she's also, number two, she's grateful. She's grateful. Look at it with me. And Ruth chapter two, verse 13, you have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. She's grateful for what she's been given. As we roll into Thanksgiving, what a great opportunity for us to center our life around gratefulness, thanksgiving, not seeking more, but being grateful for what we've been given in the present. What month is it, by the way? What month is it? Do you know what October is? That's right, Pastor Appreciation Month. I just want to remind you. Now, now, look, 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 look. you may be like, okay, it's, it's all about him now. No, that's not the case. I don't want anything from you. But what I do want is I want you to thank all of our other staff who do a fantastic job. And I want you to be grateful. And maybe one of them makes a decision that you're not too uh, happy about. Would you just think, okay, Ruth, I am grateful. And also, would you, you know what, take him to lunch or send him a gift card or or just give him a card or give him a call, a text, say, I'm grateful for you. Okay, would you do that for me? That'd be wonderful. You don't have to do anything for me at all. Okay. Yeah, they deserve a hand. They do. The next thing we see about Ruth is that she's compassionate. We saw that in earlier in her story. She's compassionate because she goes with her mother-in-law to a different country. What daughter-in-law would do this? She's the most compassionate daughter-in-law I've ever heard about. And she shows great amount of compassion. And because of the legacy of compassion she shows, people are being compassionate to her. Unbelievable how we see this in play. And then we see a fourth thing here is that Ruth was passionate about her faith. That she was passionate about her faith. Look at it with me in verse 12. Boaz says, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, all you ladies in the house, especially you young ladies, even through the senior adult ladies, just look at me, give me your attention. This is a model woman. 
She has put her faith in Christ and God, and she is passionate about her faith. In our culture today, what is expected of a young lady is this. They graduate high school and they go to college or they get into these years and they're expected to join a sorority. They're expected to go crazy. They're expected to do all these different things, make decisions that they're going to regret maybe later on in life. But Ruth, she doubles down in holiness. She doubles down and not, does not settle for what's in front of her. And I think this is key. So many times we have the opportunity to settle for less than God's best, but don't settle. Ruth is a great example of this. But then also you have to understand this, that Ruth, her back's against the wall. That she has no hope in a lot of ways. She's destitute. She's bankrupt. She's single in a culture that that is looked completely down upon. But what does she do? She doubles down on the faith in her in Yahweh, and she takes and seeks refuge in God. And everyone takes notice of that. And I am so impressed and encouraged by that. When your back is against the wall, sometimes we make decisions that we're not too happy about. Would you double down on your faith when your back is against the wall? Because what comes out of you is your character. And would your trust and your faith in God come out in those seasons? Because here's the deal. Your faith in God does impact your relationships more than you know. I've been reading a book recently. It's called The Christ-Centered Marriage. Incredible book. And this book goes on to detail and, and lean into the idea of our faith basically um, impacting our relationships in, in many ways. And the author goes on to give a, a brief history of our nation. In the 1950s, it was the leave it to beaver years. And in our country, one out of 1,000 church-going families experienced divorce. One out of 1,000. Then in the 1960s, war hit our country, and there was all kinds of upheaval, social and civil um, stuff was going on. And in the middle of all of that, we didn't realize the kind of impact that it was having on our relationships until we get into the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, 2000, and today. And what happened was in the 50s, the pastor was looked upon as the counselor and the wisdom giver, and, and, and he would kind of encourage the way that it should go. But, but that mantle was taken off the pastor, and it was put on the psychologist, secular psychologist of the day. And the secular psychologist said, you know what? this is what you need to do to have a good relationship. They would say, you know, you need to have discipline because that's a good thing to have. And yeah, I would agree they have discipline. And then they would say, you know what? You also need to have some sex therapy because that's a part of a relationship. And then they would say, you need to, you need to have family outings. Certain family outings are going to definitely encourage your life. And then they would say, you know, you're going to also, you know, you're going to need X, Y, and Z. And they make these lists. And they're going to, you know, you're also going to need uh, this amount of income and all these things that counselors and psychologists were giving. Now, there's nothing against psychologists and counselors. I believe wholly in this institute. I'm not saying that at all. So please understand me. But, but consider this for a second. You have Mr. and Mrs. Pitcher here. Okay? And what they hear from a psychologist is, well, if you'll just do this, Mr. Pitcher will do that. And Mr. Pitcher hears, 
If you just do this, well, then Mrs. Pitcher will do that. And so they start running and they start doing this and that and this and that and this and that. And eventually they're just exhausted. They're worn out. And, 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 and really they're asking, is our relationship any better? No. And I would ask, are our relationships better than they maybe were before? No, they're not. And here is why. Because we have forgotten to put Christ in the middle. According to John chapter 15, he says that we are to abide in Christ. And when we begin to abide in Christ and he is the center of our relationship, the evidence of this is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And all of a sudden, those things start coming to life. And all of a sudden, he's loving. And all of a sudden, she's there's goodness coming out of her. And all of a sudden their marriage is on the uptick instead of the downtick when we are fully centered in Christ. And Ruth's life is centered around Christ. I want to ask you today, ladies and gentlemen, are your dating relationships centered in Christ? Is your engagement centered in Christ? Is your marriage centered in Christ? This is so critical to your relationship. And we see this in Ruth's life. Now, let's stop with Ruth and let's move on to Boaz. Now, what we learned from Boaz, just from chapter 2 and chapter 1, we gather a few things this morning, okay? And the headline for Boaz is this, that he was a man of character, I'm praying that two of my daughters, they bring home Boazes someday. I'm praying to God that they, a Boaz steps through my door and I'm able to bless that marriage. That's what I'm praying for because he was a man of character. And we're going to see that real quickly. First of all, he had the heart of the Father God. That Boaz had the heart of the Father God. First of all, here's why he, I say that. First of all, he protected those who needed protection. He was a safe individual, somebody that Ruth felt safe around. And also he was courageous. He was willing to step up in the gap and mind the gap when there needed to be someone to step up in. I love that. He had the heart of the Father God. Second of all, he had a generous heart. He was a generous person. We already talked about how he was already giving to God the 10% of his gross income. And then in another, in another pocket, another line item in his budget, he's generously giving to Ruth. He was a generous person. Are you a generous man? Would your children see generosity flowing from you? I, I had the great privilege of watching my father and his generosity. We were so poor. Did you know that it doesn't take a wealthy man to be generous? You can be wealthy or you can be poor and you can be generous. We were poor. We ate rice on a consistent basis. We didn't have cable TV. We would have that aluminum foil on the antenna ears, okay? That was our home growing up. We had a car that sometimes worked and sometimes not. But I would see my dad very, more times than not, give things away out of the generous heart that he had. He still does that to this day. Do you have that kind of heart, man? Let me ask you a different way. Is it possessions or people for you? Will you let your daughter, your son, your, your wife not drive that car? If it 
If you don't want them to drive it at all, maybe that possession is more important than that person. He was a, Boaz, he was a generous person. Not only did he have the heart of a father God, not only was he a generous person, number three, he was gentle towards Ruth and at the same time, he was gritty. I love this. He didn't, he did not give up gentleness for his grittiness, nor did he give up his grittiness for gentleness. So many times we think, well, if we're going to be gentle, then we have to be this, you know, this wimpy guy. That's not the case. And so often the times we think we have to be this gritty guy, this John Wayne figure, we, we, we shouldn't be gentle. I think that a real man is both gentle and gritty at the same time. He's gentle to Ruth, but he had the, the guts to stand up to his workers and say, hands off of her. Hands off. And they were like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And another thing that I loved about Boaz is, uh, number four, he was a man who used everyday opportunities for the gospel. He used everyday opportunities for the gospel. Here's how I know this to be true. When he walks into that field, he gives a greeting to those workers, and then the, the workers give a greeting back. And that greeting was actually from a worship church service in their culture. So he's taking elements of a church service. It'd be like you going to your business or your local work and talking about something in our worship service and talking about it with the workers enough that they know it's going to come out of you. And what Boaz is doing is he's bringing church to them. He's bringing God to them. He's incorporating his faith. He's not compartmentalized. He's, he's a saint on Sunday. And then on Monday, it's a totally different story. That's not Boaz at all. And I love this, and here's why. Because he is pastoring his people. Did you know this? That you may be the closest pastor that people in your work community and your environment will ever get to. They may never darken the doors of our church. I hope they do, but they will interact with you. Are you pastoring them? Are you a team leader? Are you a business owner? Are, are you someone on a team? You have the opportunity to take everyday conversations, everyday implications, and point them back to God. Another thing that we see about Boaz in number five, this is the fifth one, and the last one we see about him, is that he was a man full of grace. I love this. He was a man full of grace. My wife recently, or not recently, a few years ago said, Ray, we need to plant a garden. I looked around the, the yard and I said, we already have a garden. She said, no, we don't. I said, yeah, it's called Meyer. That's the garden. I said, you can get groceries anytime you want. And uh, she disagreed. And we have a garden now, okay? And, uh, <clears throat> and, and, and but the, the truth be told, full disclosure, I said, we can have a garden. Don't hate me for this, but I don't ever want to pull a weed in that garden and I don't want to till anything. So she has faithfully been growing this garden and she spent some time, uh, you know, getting the soil rich and putting nutrients in it and watering it and getting it ready for the, the seed to germinate and to grow. And we have reaped the rewards of a garden that is reaping all kinds of wonderful fruit and vegetables for us to eat. Have you ever tried to plant a garden on bare, cracked, waterless soil? It's almost impossible. So is the same in your relationship. What I mean by this is this, that in order for a relationship to grow, there has to be fertile soil to grow that. And the way you grow that is through grace. Grace is the miracle grow of your relationships. 
It's the soil by which your relationship should operate in and grow in. And Boaz demonstrates this. Let me give you the first one. Grace takes initiative. You can write that down. That grace takes initiative. Look at it with me in verse 8. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the woman who work for me. Watch the field where the... <clears throat> Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. See, grace takes the initiative. If you had been following along in the story, you realize it. That Ruth, she is a foreigner. She is an outcast. She's an outsider. And Boaz takes the initiative with her. What a great image of what God does for us that God made the first move with us, and that is grace. I mean, it's, we see it right here in the same way. His first move with you was grace. And we know this to be true because Paul says that he is, God is rich in mercy. And 1 John chapter uh, 4, verse 19 says, we love because what he first loved, who? Us. He first loved you. He first loved me. It was his move. The gospel can be boiled down to maybe, in fact, his initiative toward mankind. I, I love what one author says. Grace is condescending to us, not because we deserve it, but because he is gracious. That he was initiative towards us. Us. And let me ask you a question this morning. Have you received this grace? Have you fully received this grace from God to you? Have you, friend, welcomed his advance on your life? And what that looks like is, first of all, to say, you know what? I need this grace. I repent of my life. I turn away from where I have been going and I turn back to God. I believe what God has done. I believe that Jesus is who he says he was because of the resurrection, and I confess it out loud. And scripture says that you are saved. You have a relationship with Christ. Have you received this grace? And for those of us who have received this grace, what should then happen is we should be compelled to initiate grace to those around us, to the widow, to the orphan, to the widower, to those who need it the most. Grace always initiates the opposite response. If somebody needs a tongue lashing, grace is silent. If somebody needs silence, grace opens the mouth. If somebody does this, then the opposite response should be propelled by the initiative of grace. This is grace. And that's what Boaz does. The second thing we see about grace is that grace complements character rather than criticizing condition. Look at it with me in verse 11. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people who did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You see, it takes grace to see past condition and complement character. I have a friend who's in a wheelchair and he has a hard time always expressing what's in his heart. And most of the world will bypass him and they'll only see his condition in his wheelchair. And what I think is so true is that the world is missing out on this individual because this man has great and deep character within him. 
See, grace only sees character. It doesn't see condition. But so many times we'll be so busy trying to change someone's condition to look just like you and look like me that we'll fail to realize and recognize, and this is really good, take note of this, uh, that God used their condition to get the character they have within them. James writes about this in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith endure, and, and what does it produce? Endurance. It, we could say it like this. It produces character. When, when uh, life drops below sea level, when we're bumped, what comes out is the deep sense of character. And what that is is grace, not looking at condition, but the character within when you look at people, when you look at people, who do you see? Are you missing out on people because you look at their condition this morning? And then finally, we see Boaz demonstrate this, is that he, grace is open-armed. That grace is open-armed. We see this. Boaz welcomes Ruth with open arms. He welcomes her with his finances. He welcomes them with his friendship. And eventually he would, we're going to learn just a little bit later, he would welcome her even in relationship in regards to being Mrs. Boaz. But being open-armed is very countercultural in our culture. Here's why. We go through life, and, you know, and I, I come down, and I you know, meet you, or you meet me, or you go through life, or whatever the case is. And when you meet somebody, you may not be thinking this, but you're processing this. Well, they don't really know me. And if they really knew me, then they would think X, Y, and Z, and they wouldn't have such open arms, right? If they really knew me, that they would realize that I just screamed at my kids 40 minutes ago. And they, if they really knew me, they would realize that I'm like a sports car. I can go from like fuming to fake in 2.5 seconds. If they really knew me, they would realize that I have a drinking problem and no one knows. If they really knew me, they would realize that I'm in so much debt that the collection agencies are on my front door. If they really knew me, they'd realize that, that I can't, I can't really be any, in any good relationship. I just self-destruct. If they really knew me, they would realize that my job isn't so good, that I'm actually on the verge of being fired, but I act like everything's good. If, I, if they really knew me, they would realize that I'm older and I'm feeling a sense that I'm being marginalized more and more and more. But grace is open-armed. Grace is wide open to you and to I. This last week, I was thinking about this and this unbelievable uh, true life story that happened in my life came to my mind. I was working out yesterday and I was thinking about this idea about grace being open-armed. And one of my old bosses came to mind. My old boss, he, um, he saw something in me when I didn't think I saw anything in myself. And he hired me. He was a senior pastor of a large church. And uh, I started to grow and, and learn under his, his leadership. And, and I'll be honest, I did not fulfill all of my duties and responsibilities to him. I was hired for this job and I did some of them well and some of them I didn't do so well. And part of it was because I wasn't very humble. Part of it was because I thought that I was all that right, in a bag of chips, okay? And I, I had some things to learn. Well, as I was working out yesterday, it all of a sudden struck me. He loved me with open arms. It was grace. 
So I, I got on my phone and I texted him, his long text, and I said, I just want to say I'm so very sorry for sometimes I did not fulfill all the duties that I should have fulfilled as your employee and your team member. And within one second, he responded back and he said, forgiven, no worries, I'm so proud of you, and I think your future is unbelievably bright. And we went on to have this long conversation after that. I was blessed. And I thought, you know what? Here's this guy that gave grace open-armed and grace was the long-term play for him. And here's why. Because it took several years later for that snot-nosed young 20-something-year-old to realize he had been given grace. See, grace is the long-term play. Grace to your children may not be seen until later. Grace to your father, your mother, grace to your stepchildren, grace to those around you, your teammates, may not be seen now, but they will see it someday. Grace, open-armed. And Jesus would tell a story about an open-armed father who would have a, a punk prodigal son who would take all of his inheritance and leave and spend it all. And then he'd come with, with his head and his tail between his legs back to his father. He's expecting his dad to reject him. And what does he get? We read from Luke chapter 15, we see a, a father with arms wide open, grace. And for those of us in this room who are believers in Christ, one day we will receive the greatest amount of grace when we get to heaven and the Father's arms will be wide open for those of us who are, who are followers of Jesus Christ. We will, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, will receive the unsearchable riches because of grace. This is unbelievable. And it should compel us to do the same. And it should give us character deep within us. When you're bumped, when things happen, when your back is against the wall, what comes out? My prayer is that these two single people will teach us character from the very foundation of our life overflowing. I want to ask you a question this morning. Is your life falling apart? I'm so thankful you're here today. I'm not thankful that your life is falling apart, but if it is, Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a situation. You're in a place where we would love to pray for you. We'd love for you to be prayed for, to be loved on, encouraged. You're gonna, this is our church with its arms wide open to you. Are you a believer in Christ today and you haven't not been a Boaz or a Ruth and you need a restart? This is our church with arms wide open to you this morning. Would you come forward and we would love to pray for you in a little bit? Maybe today you're like, I want to be a part of a church that has arms wide open like this. I'm a visitor, but I love this. We'd love for you to come forward and we'd love for you to introduce you to how you can join this church. Or maybe today you just need to come to this altar and you need to repent because you have not, friend, been living up to what God's best looks like. I don't know where that is for you, but there's going to be people with prayer badges that would love to pray for you to my right and to my left. Would you come forward? They would love to talk to you. Or maybe today you need the open arms of the Savior for the first time to say yes to Christ and give him your very life. If you, maybe you need to surrender your life to him. I'm going to pray and then we're going to begin to sing and I would love for you to respond as God would lead.